John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21, verses 1 and 2. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Burkett notes, the former part of this chapter acquaints us with that famous conference which our blessed Savior had with Nicodemus. This man was by sect a Pharisee, which signifies a person separated and set apart for the study of the law of God and to teach it unto others, and by calling or profession a ruler of the Jews, that is, probably one of the Jews, Sanhedrin, a chief person in their ecclesiastical court and council. Consider we Nicodemus first as a Pharisee, which sort of men were filled with inveterate prejudice and enmity against Christ. Yet from hence we may gather that such is the efficacy of divine grace that it sometimes convinces and converts also those that are greatest enemies to Christ and fiercest opposers of him. No such bitter enemies to Christ as the Pharisees. Yet behold Nicodemus, a Pharisee, coming to him, convinced and converted by him. Consider him, secondly, as a ruler of the Jews, a person of place and power, making a figure in the world. Though they were generally the poor which followed Christ, yet some of the great and rich men of the world, as Nicodemus, a master of Israel, and Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, are called to Christ and received by him. Lest, if he had admitted illiterate and simple men only, the world might have thought that they were deceived through their simplicity. Observe farther the time when Nicodemus came to Christ. It was by night, partly out of shame, lest the world should think that such a knowing man as he was wanted instruction, and partly out of fear. He had something to lose, and therefore durst not own Christ publicly. However, our dear Lord abrades him not with his timorousness, but graciously condescends to instruct him in the fundamental principles of Christianity, the great doctrine of regeneration. Such is the tenderness of our compassionate Savior that he will not extinguish the least spark of holy fire, nor quench the smoking flax. Verse 3. Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Burkett notes, Christ here acquaints Nicodemus, and in him all persons, that there must be a change from nature to grace before there can be a change from grace to glory. For though he was a Jew, a doctor, and one that had good thoughts of Christ, looking upon him as an extraordinary person, one that had received power from God to work miracles, yet Christ assures him that nothing short of the regenerating change would bring him to heaven. Tis not enough that we be new-dressed, but we must be new-made, that is, thoroughly and universally changed, the understanding by illumination, the will by renovation, the affections by sanctification, the life by reformation, or we can never come at heaven. We must be like God, or we can never live with him. If we be not like him in the temper of our minds on earth, we can never be happy in the enjoyment of him in heaven. For heaven, which is a place of the greatest holiness, would be a place of the greatest uneasiness to an unregenerated and an unholy person. The contagion is universal, deep and inward. Therefore, such must be the change. Verse 4. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Burkett notes, 
Two things are observable in this question of Nicodemus, how can a man be born when he is old? One, his ignorance and weakness in propounding of such a question. So true is it that of the Apostle, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. What a gross conception had this learned man of the notion of regeneration. How ignorant is nature of the workings of grace. Men of name and note, of great parts and profound learning, are very often much at a loss in spiritual matters. Yet, too, in this question of his there is discovered a great deal of plainness and simplicity. He did not come, as usually the Pharisees did, with an ensnaring question in his mouth, but with a mind fairly disposed for information and conviction, with a pious desire to be instructed. Whatever ignorance we labor under, it's safest and best to discover it to our spiritual guide, that we may attain the mercy of a saving knowledge. But how many would rather carry their ignorance to hell with them than discover it to their minister? Verse 5. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except the man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Burkett notes, Nicodemus, not rightly understanding Christ's meaning in the former verse, our Savior is pleased to explain himself in this and tells him that the birth he spake of was not natural but spiritual, wrought in the soul by the Spirit of God, whose work is like water, cleansing and purifying the soul from all sinful defilement. Learn hence that the regenerating change is wrought in the soul by the Spirit of God, which purifies it from its natural defilement and renews it after the divine likeness and image. We never understand divine truths aright till Christ opens our understandings. Till then we will be denied, nay, perhaps derided, even by those that are profoundly learned. Verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Burkett notes, as if Christ had said, As men generate men, and nature begets nature, so the Holy Spirit produceth holy inclinations, qualifications, and dispositions. Learn hence that as original corruption is conveyed by natural generation, so saving regeneration is the effect and product of the Holy Spirit's operation. Verses 7 and 8. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hear the sound thereof, but cost not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Burkett notes, Nicodemus, making an exception against our Savior's notion of regeneration from the absurdity and impossibility of it, as he thought, our Savior therefore proceeds to clear the matter by a solemnitude taken from the wind, which at once declares the author and describes the manner of spiritual regeneration. The author of it is the Holy Spirit of God compared to the wind. First, for the quality of its motion. It blows when and where it lifteth. Secondly, from the sensibleness of its effects. Thou hearest the sound thereof. Thirdly, from the intricacy or mysteriousness of its proceeding. Thou knowest not whence it cometh, nor where it goeth. As the natural wind is not under the power of man, either to send it out or restrain it, it bloweth where it listeth for all of us, though not where it lifteth in regard to God. In like manner is the Holy Spirit as the wind, in its freeness of motion, and in the variableness of its motion also. Learn hence that the way and work of the Holy Spirit of God in the soul's regeneration is oftentimes very secret 
and usually exceedingly various. Various as to the time, some are wrought upon in youth, others in old age. Various in its methods of working, some are wrought upon by the corrosives of the law, others by the lenitives of the gospel. Various in the manner of his working and in the means by which he works, upon some by a powerful ordinance, upon others by an awakening providence. But though there be such variety in the method of the Spirit's working, yet is the work in all still the same. There is no variety in the work wrought. The effect produced by the Holy Spirit in the work of regeneration is alike and the same in all, namely, likeness to God, a conformity in our natures to the holy nature of God, a conformity in our lives to the will of God. Again, it is a very secret work, and therefore compared to the wind. We hear the wind blow, we feel it blow, we observe its mighty force, and admire its strange effects, but we cannot describe its nature nor declare its original. Thus the Holy Spirit, in a secret and hidden manner, quickens and influences our souls. The effects of its operation we sensibly discern, but how and after what manner he doth it, we know no more than how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child. Therefore it's called a hidden life. Colossians 3, 2. It's not only totally hidden from carnal men, but in part hidden and unknown to spiritual men, though they themselves are the subject of it. Verses 9 through 12. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and yet ye receive not our witness. If I had told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Burkett notes, Observe here, one, how Nicodemus, consulting only with carnal reason, persists in his apprehension concerning the absurdity and impossibility of our Savior's notion of regeneration or being born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said, How can these things be? Learn hence that the great cause of men's ignorance in matters of salvation and the mysteries of religion is consulting their own natural reason without submitting their understanding to the authority of divine revelation. Till they can give a reason for everything they believe, they cry out with Nicodemus, How can these things be? Whereas though we cannot give a reason for all gospel mysteries which we believe, we can give a good reason why we believe them, namely, because God hath revealed them. No man can be a Christian who refuses to submit his understanding to the authority of divine revelation. Observe, too, how our Savior reproves Nicodemus for and upbraids him with his ignorance, verse 10, and his infidelity, verse 12. First, as ignorance is reproved, thou art a master of Israel, and knowest not these things. As if Christ had said, ignorance in any as to the fundamentals of religion is shameful, though but in a common learner, much more in a teacher and master, and he a teacher and master in Israel. Now thou art one of them, and yet knowest not these things. Hence learn, one, that a man may be very knowing himself, and take upon himself to teach and instruct others, and yet be very ignorant of the nature and much unacquainted with the work of regeneration upon his own soul. A man may be very sharp-sighted as the eagle in the mysteries of art and nature, and yet be blind as a mole in the things of God. 
Two, that ignorance in the fundamentals of religion especially is very culpable and shameful in any that enjoy the means of knowledge, but especially in those that undertake to teach and instruct others. Art thou a teacher, thou a master in Israel, and knowest not these things? Next, our Savior upbraids him for his infidelity. Verse 12, If I have told you of earthly things, and ye believe not. This infidelity received its aggravation from the facility and perspicuity of our Savior's doctrine. I have told you earthly things, that is, I have set forth spiritual things by earthly solemnitudes, not in a style suitable to the sublimity of their own nature. Let the ministers of Christ learn from their Master's example in all their discourses to accommodate themselves and descend as low as may be to the capacities of their people. I have told you earthly things. Two, that even spiritual things, when they are shadowed forth by earthly solemnitudes and brought down in the plainest manner to the capabilities of their people, yet are very slow to understand them and very backward to believe them. I have told you earthly things, and ye believe them not. Verse 13. And no man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Burkett notes, Here our Savior declares to Nicodemus that none ever ascended up into heaven to fetch down from thence the knowledge of divine mysteries and to reveal the way of life and salvation to mankind by a mediator, but only Christ himself, who, though he took upon him the human nature and was then man upon earth, yet was he at the same time in his divine nature actually in heaven as God. This text evidently proves two distinct natures in Christ. Namely, a divine nature as he was God, and a human nature as man. In his human nature he was then upon earth, when he spake these words. In his divine nature he was at that instant in heaven. Here observe that the Son of God hath taken the human nature into so close and intimate a union with his Godhead, and what is proper to either nature is ascribed unto the person of our Savior. The same person who was on earth as the Son of Man, who was then in heaven as God, and yet but one person still. Lord, what love hast thou shown to our human nature, that under the name thou hast ascribest to thyself what is proper to thy Godhead, the Son of Man, which is in heaven. The Socians produced this text to prove that Christ, after his baptism, was taken up into heaven, there to be made acquainted with the will of God, to fit him for the execution of his prophetical office here on earth and that for this reason he was said to be in the beginning with God, as Moses before him was taken up into the mount and taught by God. But one, we have not the least word of any such things in Scripture, though we have a particular account of our Savior's birth, circumcision, baptism, doctrine, miracles, death, resurrection, ascension, yea, of all small things compared with this, as his flight into Egypt, his sitting on the pinnacle of the temple, yet not a word of his assumption into heaven. Two, there was no need of it, because Almighty God could reveal himself to Christ, as well as to other prophets, out of heaven as well as in it. Besides, Christ was fitted for his prophetic office by the unction of the Spirit he received here on earth, and therefore his ascent was altogether needless. Verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Burkett notes, 
Christ, having instructed Nicodemus in the doctrine of regeneration in the former verses, here he instructs him in the death of the Messiah and in the necessity of faith in his death. The Son of Man must be lifted up, that is, upon the cross, and die, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Observe here, one, an Old Testament type which our Savior refers to, and that is the brazen serpent in the wilderness, the history of which is recorded Numbers 21, 7, and 8. Observe, too, the antitype or the substance of what that type did shadow forth, the brazen serpents lifting up upon the pole, prefiguring Christ's exaltation, or lifting up upon the cross. So must the Son of Man be lifted up. Learn hence that the Lord Jesus Christ is of the same use and office to a sin-stung soul, which the brazen serpent was of old, to a serpent-stung Israelite. Here observe one, wherein the brazen serpent and Christ do agree, and two, where they differ. They agree thus, in the occasion of their institution, they are both appointed for a cure and healing. Were they serpent-stung? We are sin-stung, devil-bitten. Was the sting of the fiery serpent inflaming? Was it spreading? Was it killing? So is sin, which is the venom and poison of the old serpent. They agree in this that they must both be lifted up before the cure could be obtained. The brazen serpent upon the pole, Christ upon the cross. They both must be looked unto before cure could be obtained. The looking up of the Israelites was as necessary unto healing as the lifting up of the serpent. Faith is as necessary to salvation as the death of Christ. The one renders God reconcilable unto sinners, the other renders him actually reconciled. Again, did the brazen serpent heal all that looked upon it and looked up unto it, though all had not eyes alike, some with a weak, others with a stronger eye? In like manner doth Christ justify and save all, that with a sincere faith, though weak, do rely upon him for salvation. Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish. Further, the brazen serpent was effectual for Israel's cure after many stingings. If after they were healed they were stung afresh and did look up to it, they were healed by it. Thus the merit of Christ's death is not only effectual for our cure and healing at our first conversion, but after involuntary relapses and backslidings, if by faith we have recourse to the blood of Christ, we shall find it efficacious for our further benefit and future healing. In a word, the brazen serpent had the likeness of a serpent, the form, the figure, the name, the color of the serpent, but nothing of the venom and poison of the serpent in it. So Christ did take upon him our nature. But sin, the venom and poison of our nature, he had nothing to do with. Though Christ loved souls with an invincible and insuperable love, yet he would not sin to save a soul. This was the solemnitude and resemblance between Christ and the brazen serpent. The disparity or dissolemnitude follows. The brazen serpent had no power in itself, or of itself, to heal and cure, but Christ has a power inherent in himself for the curing and healing of all that do believe in him. Again, the brazen serpent cured only one particular nation and people, Jews only. Christ is for the healing of all nations, and his salvation is to the end of the earth. Further, the brazen serpent cured only one particular disease, namely the stinging of the fiery serpents. Had a person been sick of the plague or leprosy, he might have died, for all the brazen serpent. But Christ pardons all the inequities and heals all the diseases of his people. 
Psalm 102.3. Yet again, though the brazen serpent healed all that looked up unto it, yet it gave an eye to none to look unto it. Whereas Christ did not only heal them that look up to him, but bestows the eye of faith upon them, to enable them to look unto him that they may be saved. In a word, the brazen serpent did not always retain its healing virtue, but in time lost it, and was itself destroyed. Second Kings 18.4 But now the healing virtue and efficacy of Christ's blood is eternal. All believers have and shall experience the healing power of our Redeemer's death to the end of the world. Lastly, the Israelites that were cured by looking up to the bronze serpent died afterwards. Some distemper or others soon carried them to their graves. But the soul of the believer that is healed by Christ shall never die more. Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Burkett notes. Here observe, one, the original source and fountain of man's salvation, and that is God's free and undeserved, his great and wonderful love. God so loved the world. He doth not say how much, but leaves it to our most solemn raised thoughts. It's rather to be conceived than declared, and admired rather than conceived. God so loved the world. Hence note that the original spring and first cause of our salvation is the free favor and mere love of God. A love worthy of God from whom it proceeds. Even love inexpressible and inconceivable. Observe too, the greatness of the gift by which God evidenced and demonstrated the greatness of his love to a lost world. He gave his only begotten son. That is, he delivered him out of his own bosom and everlasting embraces. Now this will appear a stupendous expression of God's love if we consider that God gave him who was not only the greatest but the dearest person to him in the world, even his own son. That he gave him for sinners. That he gave him for a world of sinners that he gave him up to become a man for sinners, that he gave him up to become a miserable man for sinners, that he gave him up to be a sacrifice for the sin of sinners. Observe 3. The gracious end for which God gave this great gift of his love to lost sinners, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Where note 1. The gentle and merciful condition upon which salvation depends. Whosoever believeth in Christ shall not perish. 2. The infinite goodness of God in proposing such a vast reward to us upon our performing of this condition, he shall have everlasting life. Learn hence that faith is the way which God has appointed and the condition which God hath required in order to the obtaining salvation by Jesus Christ. This faith consists in the assent of the understanding that Jesus is the Savior of the world in the consent of the will, to accept of Jesus freely and voluntarily, deliberately, advisedly, and resolvedly for our Savior, in accepting the merit of his blood and submitting to the authority of his laws, it being in vain to expect salvation by Christ if we do not yield subjection to him. He that thus believes in Christ, that submits himself to his ruling power as well as commits himself to his saving mercy, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Verses 17 and 18. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. 
He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he had not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. Burkett notes, Observe here that the salvation of sinners was the intentional end, and the condemnation of them only the accidental event of Christ's coming into the world. The design of Christ's first coming into the world was to save it. The end of his second coming will be to judge the unbelieving part of it. Observe, secondly, that unbelief is the formal cause of the sinner's damnation. It is that sin which doth bind all other sins upon the sinner and consigns him over to damnation. It is that sin which doth not only procure damnation, but no damnation like it, which is intimated in the next verse. Verse 19. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Burkett notes, observe here, 1. The worth and dignity of a choice and invaluable privilege declared, light is come into the world. A personal light, Christ. A doctrinal light, the gospel. Observe, 2. The unworthiness, abuse, and great indignity which the world, through infidelity, offers to this benefit. They reject it, and love darkness rather than light. Observe 3. The dreadful sentence of wrath which the rejection of this benefit and the abuse of Christ brings upon the impenitent and unbelieving world. It terminates in their full and final condemnation. This is the condemnation. That is, tis a just and righteous condemnation. Tis an inevitable and unavoidable condemnation. Tis a heightened and aggravated. Tis an accelerated and hastened, an irrecoverable and eternal condemnation. Learn hence that the greater and clearer the light is under which the unregenerate and impenitent do live in this world, so much the heavier will their condemnation and misery be in the world to come, if they willfully and finally reject it. Verses 20 and 21. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. Burkett notes, In these words our Savior acquaints us with the different nature of sin and holiness. It is the nature of sin and the property of sinners to hate the light, because it discovers the evil and sinfulness of their ways unto them, and condemns them for them. As the Ethiopians are said to curse the sun for its bright and hot shining, whereas holy and gracious persons that walk uprightly do love the light, that is, they delight to have their thoughts, words, and action tried by the light of the word, because they are wrought in God, that is, performed as in the sight of God, according to the direction of the word of God, and with a single eye and sincere aim at the glory of God. Learn hence, one, that the word of God, or the gospel of Jesus Christ, has all the properties of a great and true light. It is of a pure and purifying nature. It is of a manifest and discovering nature. It has a piercing power and penetrating virtue. It enters the darkest recesses of the soul and detects the errors of men's judgments as well as discovers the enormities of their lives. Learn, too, that nothing is so hateful to and hated by a wicked man as the discovering and reproving light of the Word of God, for at the same time it discovers the sin, it condemns the sinner. Learn, three, that a truly gracious person who acteth agreeable to the will of God is not afraid to examine his actions by the word of God, 
but he desires and delights that what he doth may be manifest both to God and man. He that doeth truth cometh to the light, and rejoiceth that his deeds may be made manifest, because they are wrought in God.